Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another construction special. I haven't done one of these for for many, many months, but I've been getting lots of questions about builders, and I've been showing my own stories uh, and nightmares, you could say, um, that I've been having with builders all on my Instagram story. So if you're not following me there, please go and follow me there. Um, I'm speaking to Paul Tinker, who is an ex-construction site manager. He's been in construction for 13 years and refurbished over 3,000 houses. So we talk about working with builders, how you should do it properly, taking you on the journey of finding, vetting, managing, appointing, snagging, firing them, the legalities around it, um, and some of the issues that we as investors uh, kind of have, and some of the issues that builders have with investors, and how we can all really work better uh, together. Um, it's a really, really interesting discussion. There's some, you know, you could say philosophical or, you know, hard hitting kind of points that are made that really we need to look inwards uh, sometimes when it comes to certain projects and plan them right from the start. If you are looking for passive investment or you haven't left a review for the Test Talks podcast, head on over, leave a review and drop me a message and let's talk. Paul Tinker, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you, Tej. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now, for people listening, you'll be familiar with my kind of construction slash refurb specials, um, where I speak to an expert in the field to get a kind of view from someone who's kind of been there, done that, slash is doing it. I think it's important for us investors um, to learn from other investors, but also people who, you know, in other kind of particular fields. Um, Paul, let's let's start with you as a, as a person. Like, what I don't know. Give me your bio. Who are you? What do you do? What you been doing? Oh, I could talk for hours on it. <laughs> I'll, I'll start at the most relevant point. So, I was in the military from leaving school uh, after a, a sort of a shall I say a choice of going down a, a road that uh, my parents didn't want me to go down. So, I ended up in the military. To cut a long story short, uh, when in the military, I trained as a bricklayer. Uh, a lot, not a lot of people know that in the military they are they do have tradesmen, uh, which is a strange concept for some, but we do. I trained as a bricklayer. I did 14 years in the military and left that in 2007 to pursue a career in construction management. Uh, when I when I did that, when I made that choice to go into construction management, I didn't actually know what I was getting myself into, and it came as a bit of a I stole my mate's idea. Uh, my mate, I w- I'd signed off from the army. I didn't want to be in there anymore. And um, we were on what's called a, contri- uh, a career transition workshop where the military give you the tools and skills to become a civilian. It sounds a bit daft, but uh, they, they do do that to reintegrate you into civilian life. And I was sat in this interview room and, and the, the guy next to me, I had no idea what I wanted to do. At this point, I was just a, I was a soldier. I was a bricklayer. I didn't know anything else. So my, my pal that was sat next to me at the time, uh, the guy that took the course, John, his name was, he went around the room and said, what do you want to do, guys? What do you want to do when you leave the military? And this guy next to me, Joe, he said, I'm going to be a construction site manager. And I looked at Joe and I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So uh, I said, yeah, I'm going to be a construction site manager as well. And Joe knew that I had no idea what I wanted to do. So he like gave me daggers and 
and ironically, he was resettling to the same town as what I did. And we both interviewed for the same job, coincidentally. And I got the job uh, and Joe didn't. So he still doesn't speak to me to this day. I, 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 uh, so I, I did, uh, so uh, yeah, 2007, I was in that. And then I did 10, 10, no, sorry, 11 years uh, as a civilian construction site manager. Uh, I was in the refurb space, uh, working for local authority, uh, social housing stock. Uh, and I had, had a few properties on the go myself uh, behind the scenes. Uh, I've done absolutely everything that you can possibly imagine in refurb. Uh, I've done over 3,000 properties altogether, uh, over 300 million pounds worth in revenue. I've done everything from a small bungalow up to a 24-story block of flats in Glasgow city centre. So I've done, I've done every single type of property that you can possibly imagine. And within within that, I can honestly say that no two have been the same. You know, I've seen everything. We've seen bodies in basements. We've seen marijuana farms and lofts. It just the the scale of thing is, is is so huge that there's so many different variants and so many different variables that you can encounter on a refurb that you know you you could never write sort of a a, a scripted approach to what you might find and what you may need to have to do on on a particular property. Uh, but the one thing that I, I did do when I left uh, that that uh, that corporate world in 2018 to set up my own construction business was I needed an approach. I was going into the refurb space and I'd been in this comfortable little bubble working for a corporate business that, that budget didn't really matter to me. It did to the business, but I didn't give a shit about it. It was just, you know, Paul, go do, don't go uh, refurb this, uh, these properties. I didn't care about, you know, sort of efficiency, effectiveness, compliance. None of that mattered to me. I was there to earn a salary. But when I left that and went on my own, it was quickly, it became quickly apparent that I needed this, needed a, a standardized, systemized approach to any sort of refurb that I do. Now, I set up my construction business. And when I first set it up, I would take on anything, absolutely anything, because I, I wasn't desperate, but it was a new business. And, you know, how, how do I start generating customers? I didn't know how to do it. I'd been in the military and I'd worked for a corporate business. So I didn't actually know how to sell. I didn't know how to, to go out and put myself out there, as it were. So I put a little card in Tesco's window, uh, you know, uh, construction services for sale. And and the same day, a lady rang me up and asked me to hang her a TV on a on a son's bedroom wall. Uh, and I went and did it. It took me about an hour and I got 40 quid and I was absolutely buzzing to make 40 quid in an hour. It was like, this was the best thing ever. You know, I've just been made redundant from this corporate business. Uh, I've lost a six-figure salary and I'm buzzing about a 40-quid job. But it, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the freedom of it. I loved being my own boss. It was it was just great. So from there, uh, I, I grew my construction business. So within, within six months, I had 21 members of staff, uh, four vans, a commercial uh, unit uh, where we were operating our, our teams from. Uh, we, we we turned over just, just shy of 280,000 in the first seven months of operating so it, it was a real projection of, of growth um, and that was done using my corporate skills and knowledge and experience that I'd learned in that world and you know I quickly realized that my trade wasn't bricklayer it was actually project manager and I didn't realize that until I started running my own business you know and people say what's your trade I used to say bricklayer but really and truly uh, I was a manager of sorts so uh from there, I decided that the niche I wanted to find myself in was obviously not hanging people's tellies and uh, balls. So 
I decided I wanted to work in the property space. You know, it was something that I was good at and something that I was I was passionate about full house refurbishments. That's where, where my career had taken me. So I started plugging myself in property groups and uh, I marketed my services to property investors. Uh, and it went really well, uh, that marketing campaign and, and bringing these, these clients on board. But, but being in that corporate space, being working in that in that professional environment, there was obviously an approach, a legal contractual approach to a, a construction project, which is, again, it was the only way I knew how to do things. So to, to bring that out into, I'll, I'll call it the, the, the property space, was, was really, really tricky. I find I was getting really frustrated with property investors not understanding, uh, you know, certain things that must be done. In terms of you know, bill cost contracts, payment terms, uh, programs of works, schedules, uh, specification, uh, period, you know, overhead and profit, prelim delays, all them things, uh, and and this frustration that I had, I almost walked away from the property space and said, look, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not working in this space. I'm going back to doing plastering Mrs. Miggins' ceiling and I'm going to start putting tellies back on walls again because this is shit. I can't stand it. I was getting really annoyed with it. So he was on a beach in Turkey in August 2019, and uh, I was having this conversation with my wife, and I said, look, I need to walk away from this. I can't, I can't be doing with it. I'm getting frustrated, frustrated, and frustrated more and more so. The more and more people I speak to, the more and more potential clients I engage with. And, you know, she was like, well, what, what are you getting frustrated about it for? Why don't you just show them how to do it? And I said, that's going to take too long. I ain't got time for that. So she almost dared me to set up this training business, and it was right. Let's let's make this an income stream. Let, let's teach this, teach how to manage a refurb. That's the skill that you have. You know, you're not a bricky anymore. You're not going around showing people how to lay bricks and, you know, two on one, two on one. It, it's, sorry, one on two. That makes me sound like a real shit. I got that backwards. Oh, my God. <laughs> but back, back to management, you know, go, go teach this, teach this management. So, so I had an event uh, in back in August. It's a year ago, just over a year ago now. And uh, it went really well. I've, I formed this training business, and that that course is now uh, the revenue and the courses that I've done the offering for the state and the value that I'm giving to to our clients is has just grown day on day, not not week on week or month on month. It, it grows by the day. Uh, you know, the, the following grows by the day. The the, the the list, the customers, the clients, the the reach, everything. I'm sure you'll you'll have appreciate uh, experienced it yourself with with the growth of your own podcast, Taj. It's, um, you know, it's, it, it's great. And I absolutely love what I do. I love what I do. I love teaching and I still love doing refurb work. We've still got our construction business operating. That still goes on and still serving clients. So it's, it's, a, it's a great space to be in. Yeah. I've rattled long enough. Come on, mate. I <laughs> so a construction site manager, um, what exactly is, is that a project manager? Oh, no. No, oh. actually. YouTube video on this, uh, on the difference between the two. So I used to liken it to when I used a, a military analogy. The, the, the project manager was the troop commander and the and the site manager was your, your full screw, your sergeant, the man on the ground, the guy in the trenches pointing at, you know, telling the troops where to go. So in, in construction speak, in a refurb site speak, the project manager is the guy that plans the project. So he's going to be going out to the project on if we use if we talk about it in the property space now uh, the project manager would go and look at the job see what needs to be done they would then formulate a plan based on what they found in that viewing so they'll put a program of works together a specification decide what the budget and the exit strategy is 
those things all form part of the plan. So then we'll start sourcing subcontractors and making sure that we're getting the correct subcontractors in on that project. How are we approving these people? How do we make sure that these people that we're going to entrust our project in are going to deliver the service that we want to want to be delivered and to what standard? How are we going to look at payment terms and how can we stretch them terms of our suppliers and our supply chain? Um, all them high level, all the high level activities, all the role of the project manager. He'll carry out all the legal compliance submissions, um, any business procedures or processes, liaise with local authority. Uh, any planning submissions, building reg submissions, that type of thing. Then your site manager is the guy on the ground in, in the muck and bullets, as we call it, on our courses. Uh, they're the guy on the job making sure that the, the back boxes for the electrical sockets are on level. They're all in line as they ping around the room. All the safety um, aspects of what they're doing is being done correctly. You know, they're not jumping from scaffold to scaffold. There's another one that I like to use because some I've done in my past, but we don't talk about that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, all, all these things, the day-to-day running is the site manager's job, making sure people are signing in and signing out, wearing the PPE they're meant to be wearing, doing what they say that they would do, working in accordance with their risk assessments and method statements, and their the, the manual handling is all correct, and they're not taking risks and, and taking shortcuts and making sure that every, all the products that are going in are being done to a standard. They're being done, it's the correct product in the first place, and it's being put in in accordance with the specification. Or the sockets are in the right place, in the right corners. The doors swing in the correct way. You haven't got light switches behind doors, which is a classic that we see. And, and all things like that. Managing the program as well, that's another one. So that whilst the project manager has written the program from a high level, it would then be the site manager's job to make sure that the delivery of that project is done in accordance with that program that's been written. So it's almost like he's wingman or, or, or woman, whichever is, is carrying out the task, if you like. Mm, that makes sense that makes sense um it sounds like quite a fun job actually just going around checking on stuff shouting at people for not doing it right i'm sure i'm sure it's quite tough as well <laughs> i'm sure it's very very tough dealing with people so in your own construction business are you essentially doing that same role or have you taken a kind of more business owner approach and you've got other people doing that stuff how does it work with you no, I'm a, I'm a business owner approach now in the construction business. I've got a very, very, very good, strong team that we've built over the last two years. Uh, you know, we use the same subcontractors pretty much now on, on every job. We need the odd, the odd one needs, you know, the the, the, uh, the wake up call where we use some bring somebody else in his place, and that's usually enough of a wake up call to for them to book their ideas up. Uh, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a site manager and a project manager that that run these projects from. Again, same same relationship. The project manager sits up high. He writes the program and the specification, all, all things relative to that project. And then the site manager is then responsible for delivering it to that plan. Uh, at the moment, as I sit here right now, we have uh, one, two, three, four, five different live projects at the moment with a total gross revenue of sitting around 700000 off the top of my head, uh, something like that. Very nice. Now, I'm going to ask you a quite a broad question here that can be answered in any way, but I know all property investors, more than 99% of them, I think, feel this way. Um, why is it so difficult to work with builders and why are builders so annoying? <laughs> are you calling me annoying? Well, you're a business owner. You're not a builder, see? So I've, I've got myself out of that one already. Is that why you asked that question first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, 
So what was the question again? Go on, say that again. So why, you know, like why are builders so difficult to work with? Now, if you ask a property investor, what's the yeah. hardest part of your business? I am sure that 99% will say the refurb. Okay. So, so for me, uh, if you're finding something difficult or, or somebody's annoying you, if somebody is annoying you, it's quite simply an expectation that's not being met. You can apply it to all areas and fields of your life. You know, any time you've ever felt annoyed, pissed off, frustrated, whichever one of those negative feelings that we're talking about comes to comes to light, comes to the surface, that's because you've got an expectation, an expectation of something, and that expectation isn't being met. Nine times out of ten, that expectation not being met is owing to a failing in yourself of not communicating that expectation. So the expectation in your head is no good in your head. It needs to be communicated, but nine times out of ten, we don't do that. So the choice, the choice that you have from there on in, is we either we either lower our expectation or we communicate it. So it's one or the other. You know, a, a number of a number of, in fact, over a hundred times, people I've jumped on calls with people that need help on their refurbs, and they've said things to me like, "It's took too long," and I go, "What do you mean it's took too long? Why it's took way too long this project? They're in the tenth week." I say, well, how many weeks should it have been done in? What should have been done in five or six? Is it five or is it six? Well, I think it should have been six. Some of your programmer works and I'll have a look at it. Right, got a programmer works. You haven't got a programmer works, but you're saying it should take six weeks. So how have you arrived at that six week figure? That was just my guess when I did the viewing. Okay, so did you communicate that six week period to your builder? Well, no. So how is he over? What is he over? You're saying it's took too long, he's gone over schedule, but where's the schedule? Well, I don't have one. So so you're getting pissed off over a failing that the builder hasn't failed in. You just think that he has because your expectation of it being done in six weeks hasn't been met. However, you didn't communicate that expectation in the first place. So how can that possibly be the fault of the builder? And I hear things like this so many times. Another one is being over budget. Builder one, builder's gone over budget. Did you tell the builder what the budget is? I'm not giving him that number. And it's like, what do you mean you're not giving him that? How can it be over budget if you don't know what the budget is? You know, it, these things are, uh, you know, people are of, of the mind, of the belief that the, the builder is there to, um, you, you touched on it earlier saying that, that they're annoying, but, you know, there's a misconception. I have to choose my words carefully here. There's a misconception in the industry that builders are there to sort of be servient to property investors. Now, for me, they're, they're business owners like any other. You know, they've got they've got a they've got a service to deliver and a profit to make. You know, they, I, I we hear a lot of sort of bad mouthing and a lot of all builders are this and all builders are that. You did it yourself with a question. You know, why are all builders so annoying? Now, it's a real generalization and it does get people's backs up just get other builders back so I, I hear it all the time off my own tradesmen when I'm giving them shit you know they, they, they'll they they'll come to me what do you mean what do you mean you know, that can start around itself and that's that's builder to builder you know so I've answered your question yeah I think you have but I mean look let's take it let you know let's take people on a journey right let's show people you know from the kind of start of even finding a builder how they should do it you cool with that so right, I've got I've got a project. I've got the keys. I own it, or I'm you know I'm I'm exchanged. I'm, I'm I'm basically about to own it. How? And this is what so many investors ask. 
how, where do I find a builder and how do I make sure that, you know, they're good? Because you're on social media, a few builders are, but a lot aren't. So it's quite, you know, say with a, a property investor, you want to loan them money. You look at their brand, you look at their Instagram, you look at all this. But with builders, I, I find that there's not as much of that. How can I find a builder? I've got the house, I've got the keys. What, what can I do next? In, in truth, Tej, there is a there is a, an approach to it. We have a we have a professional procurement procedure within our construction business. How we source and find our tradesmen that will work on our behalf. Truth be told, most property investors don't give a shit about that. They'd rather get somebody quick. They don't really care what it is, who it is. They usually go for the cheapest, and then they moan later that it wasn't to the standard that they anticipated. Again, an expectation not being met, and then as a result, all builders are shit. All builders are this. All builders are that. That's basically what happens. Truth be told, people will tell you that they've been out to market and got three quotes, but nine times out of ten, they don't bother their ass. They the, the find one and they use one. And it's usually based on availability and price, generally. Now, our procurement procedure is about 42 pages long, uh, so I obviously can't go into the, the full depth of it, but places where we would... Look, if we were looking to bring somebody new into our team, maybe a specialist, an abseiler or a stonemason or somebody like that, somebody that's not generally working for us all the time, maybe a stained glass specialist, uh, a, I don't know, a legionella specialist, someone like that. I'd be looking on, we have a model within our training academy, but I would be, I'll be looking on places like Trustmark, Checker Trade, My Builder, Rated People, all these platforms. All these platforms have done a certain level of due diligence for you in advance as, as, a, as a result of that person being a member of their site. Trustmark's really good and the Federation of Master Builders are really good and Checker Trade's also really good. They're all really good because the people, the members of them, have to pay a significant amount of money to be able to carry their logos and stay a part of their uh, membership. So Checker Trade, the last time I looked, we was paying 140 or 150 quid a month or something like that. Uh, the Federation of Master Builders is very similar. I think that's around 150 quid. At Trustmark, we're not a member of Trustmark, but I know that they are, They also charge a premium fee such as that. That does come with polarity, though. So if you was to look on Checker Trade, if you was to carry out the exercise yourself now and looked at an electrician in – where are you based, Tage? Are you Nottingham Way? West London. So if you – I don't know why I thought you was Nottingham. If you looked at West London electrician, if you was to if you was to Google that, you would probably find, I don't know, a thousand tradesmen. But if you look on Checker Trade, you might only find eight or nine. So those eight or nine that are there on a trusted site and being plugged by somebody like Checker Trade that has truly vetted these people, um, you know, they're they're in high demand because that's one of the first places that most people will look for tradesmen so they are they are hard to get uh, sort of on your projects if you're not planning that thing in advance if you're not up operating a, a, a project management tool before you buy that property you could be waiting some time before you can get the quality of these guys in you know there's um if i'll tell you a story about checker trade when i first joined I first set up my construction business the 1st of April, 2018 it was, and I joined Checker Trade straight away. Uh, they, well, I say I joined them straight away. I tried to join them straight away. I, I was watching uh, Lethal Weapon. You remember that series, Lethal Weapon, with the uh, with the guy with the cool hair? The series, not the film. 
Yeah. He, uh, on the adverts when that series was out, was Checker Trade. It was like, uh, checkertrade.com, that little jingle that gets stuck in everybody's head. Uh, I was listening to that and uh, I thought, I wonder what this is about. So I rang him up and said, Yeah, I want to be a member. Okay, we'll start your application. And I thought, What do you mean application? Here's my money. Just take my money. Uh, and they wouldn't have that. So I had to send him all my qualifications for everything I said I could do. So they wanted to see all my brickwork certificates, all my concrete certificates, damp certificates, and all the all the accreditations I was claiming to have on this application, they wanted to see it. They wouldn't take photocopies. They wouldn't take scans. They don't take the originals. And then they sent them back to me. Uh, they wanted to see my birth certificate, driving license, copy of my insurance, registrations of my vans. Uh, they wanted to see a procedure for showing ID to customers. Uh, feedback, genuine, they wanted to see genuine feedback that they could verify themselves personally. Uh, photos of previous work. And what was the other thing? There was something else. I forget. We got to the end of this and I did all this. This took a couple of weeks to get all this done. Then I'm thinking, right, I just pay my money now and now I can advertise. So I'm trying to sell my money again. Right, we'll send the uh, interview guy out for you. What do you mean, interview guy? Yeah, we have to come and vet you in your house. I'm thinking, what? At the time, I was living on a bit of a building site and I thought, I can't have Checker Trade come around here. I'm saying I'm the world's best bricklayer and my house is in rag. So anyway, this guy turns up and he knocks on the door. I'm thinking, this is a winding place. This guy come in the house and uh, I'm here from Checker Trade to interview you and I'm thinking, this this is serious. You know, They're taking this serious, this level of diligence that they're doing for their customers. So it's great. Uh, so I, he sat down and uh, I made him a coffee. And in our house, we don't have sugar in our house. Uh, we only have... Uh, those clicky things, uh, sweet X, the sweetener things. Uh, and th- this guy's, yeah, I'll have a coffee with two sugars. And I'm thinking, shall I get away with a sweetener? I thought, no, nah, better not. So I'm rooting through the cupboards and I've, I've found what I thought was the sugar bowl. It turned out to be the salt bowl. So he got two spoons of salt in his coffee whilst I've been interviewed for this uh, checker trade. He took a big slug of it and he spat it all over my front room, this guy. He went, mate, you put salt in that. And he thought I'd done it on purpose. So it was it was like, oh, shit, this is a good start. But anyway, we uh, yeah, we became a member of Checker Trade there forward. Now, yeah, they do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And another reason why their database is, is limited for me, I believe, uh, I don't know this, uh, but I have to say that that level of diligence that I experienced from them, I now know firsthand that they do actually do that what they say that they do. I think one of their business strap lines is vetted for you or something like that. So they have, they have carried out this, uh, this, this, this level of, of checks on us. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's a great thing to, to know for the, for your listeners to know. That is really interesting. I, mean, I just thought they were just a place where you kind of register, you upload stuff and then you kind of get on with it. But to hear that they do that is, is pretty awesome. And, I've messaged, I don't know, seven, eight, nine builders from Checker Trade, not a single reply, and it was six months ago. So they are in demand. Um, and so, okay, let, let's say we've used all these websites. We're liking reviews. We're liking, you know, the pictures, all that kind of stuff. We got, let's just for argument's sake, say we got three builders. We're like, right, we're, we're feeling these, these people. We want to, you know, go, do something with them. How do you then... Like how do you how would you personally then narrow it down to the one you're going to work with? Um, are there some tips and tricks that people can implement to hopefully get the best one? Well, here's the thing: in the property space, it becomes a point where where a, where an installation or a service is good enough. 
Does that make sense? No, Are you people, saying people... for investors versus homeowners? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. People are often chase this unicorn of, of absolute perfection. And if you want that, then, then go get that. But, you know, I don't believe you can be in the property space where, where time is your biggest cost. Nothing else but time. That is your biggest cost. There becomes a point where you have to draw a line, as it were. You know, if you were a homeowner and let's say you had your bedroom skimmed and there was a couple of trial marks in that bedroom wall, plasterers have finished, they've gone off site, decorator comes in and he's moaning that there's some trial marks in the wall, just as a quick example. If that was your house, you'd have the plasterer back rubbing that out or, or you'd ask the decorator to rub that out. Or you would resolve it. If that was going to be a buy-to-let and you, you say to the plasterer, look, I'm not happy with the plastering, I want, so I want you to come back, that might be two weeks away. So there becomes a point where, is, is that trial mark going to affect the product that I'm trying to deliver here? Is it that much of an issue for me? It might well be. You might well insist on that trial mark being removed. But be prepared to wait for that. And whilst ever you're waiting, that's costing you money. So there is a, there's a balance. There's a balance to be had between, you know, what's good enough? What will I accept? So uh, I touched on it a minute ago, time being the biggest deciding factor. That's one of the key drivers for me. So if I have, it's all going to depend on what your model is, what your exit is, what your business, how your business is geared up. If you're, if you're flipping, for example, you're flipping a, a high-level property where uh, you know, it needs to be back on the market in four weeks because you've got it on a bridge or whatever, a high-level, high-interest return bridge, time becomes your biggest factor. Your biggest cost is time. That, that project takes two weeks longer than you anticipate, uh, two months longer than you anticipated. You're adding thousands of pounds to that build without even knowing it. And so for me, the selection is not, if I can find three builders that are all in the roundabout price range, the decision will largely be made on availability. So if and, and that will also sometimes may drive my decision if avail, availability sometimes becomes more important to me than price. So I may well be able to get a, a, a property skimmed. Let's say I can get a full property skimmed out for £3,000, but the guy can't start for eight weeks. There's a guy available that can skim it out for four and a half thousand pounds, but he can start today. I'm going with the four and a half thousand pound that can start today because I know that that six week delay will cost me more than 1500 quid. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I know it's from my own personal head that this is something that I think some of us property investors will struggle with because we're like, oh, it's 1,500 more, but we're not realizing, hold on, your interest, your time, your lost rent is going to cost more than that. So it's a really good point that you know, I personally have seen myself make that mistake many times before. So, yeah. Very difficult concept for people to get their head around. One, one thing I always say is um, when I'm teaching, uh, you, you take your time is worth something. Your time managing a project is worth something to you. You don't do this for free. Your time must be paid for by the project and not the profit. You know, when you stack that deal up, if you've got, if you're anticipating, in 10k or 20k profit at the end of that project so it's a four or six week project if you're hoping to pull 20k profit out of that that must be after you've paid yourself otherwise you're doing it for nothing you know if, if you're don't take your wages out of the profit the profit is to move into the next project you know you want to be factoring some t some money into that 
into the job for your own time delivering that. And the longer it goes on, the more that's needed to pay you. And the longer it goes on, you've got things like meter charges, council tax, insurances, travel, um, loss of income, loss of rental income at the back end in not being able to start the next one. All those delays, you end up kicking the can down the road and you're stretching the project out when you don't need to. And you can start it six weeks earlier because you've got availability available now as opposed to six weeks later. It's a really difficult concept for people to get their around. Well, I'm not paying that. If he can do it for that, I'll just wait six weeks. Lunacy. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, let's say we've we've now found found our builder, we've found our team, we're, we're happy to proceed. Um, are there any key things, such as minor work schedules, contracts, scope of works, that you know you think are absolutely necessary, must have in place before they set foot in that house? Yeah, so you need a contract. That contract has to be based upon something. You can't just have a standard contract that someone's given you off Facebook because it means nothing without a point of reference. So that contract needs to have three key things embedded within, and that's a price, the period, and the standard. So the price, if we're doing a fixed price lump sum one-stop shop builder, that price needs to be referenced within the contract. That price needs to then be referenced against a standard, a specification, and the program period, the time period. If those three things are met, then you shouldn't have any issues. And you've then got a point of reference in the event of. What do I mean by in the event of? So if, if you change a product, if you change something on that project, you've got a point of reference to go back to. If somebody comes to you for an extra, you've got a point of reference, right? It was included in that price. Why are you asking me for extra? Because it's all written there. If you've got a point of reference, it removes the argument. And, and, and people miss this. People think that contracts are there to create arguments and they're there to whip people with they're there to, oh, well, I said this in the contract. A contract is there. When a contract is in place, you actually remove the argument rather than start one because you have a, you have a really simple point of reference, somewhere to go to, to discuss the thing that you're discussing. I'm not happy with that kitchen that you've put in, for example. Without a contract, that's now an argument because it's two, it's two people's differing perspective on a situation or a product. If you've got a contract where it's been referenced, which kitchen's going to go in, it's quite easy to just go to a contract and say, well, that's what we agreed. Okay, mate, sorry, my mistake. Do you see the difference? It's gone away. It's gone. Then no longer an argument. Other thing to remember about contracts is a contract is quite simply an agreement between two parties or people. I'll say that again. A contract is a simple agreement based between two parties or people based on a set of principles. So that people use the word contract and it can be a bit scary for builders, particularly one-stop shop, uh, one-stop shop, the other one I meant, one-man bands. One-man bands, you're, you're, you're sparky with a van or you're plastering with a van and a mate and a couple of labourers, they'll run a mile if you start talking contracts. I start using the word agreement. It's so much more uh, inviting and is a joined-up approach. And agreement is the, is the key word. You know, the, these contracts should well be, they should be agreements, agreements based upon a set of principles. You know, get, get your payment terms in there. So we'll meet, I'll just go off on a run now on a, on a, on a, on a total tangent. So when we look at payment terms, if I can get a tradesman that's going to be saying to me, I want 28-day terms, that's great. It means I don't have to pay him for 28 days. But within, within that contract, that agreement, we need to understand what triggers the payment. What is it that becomes day one? Is it 
Is it their day one on site? That's now triggered the 28 days. Is it they've finished on site? That now triggers the 28 days. Is it they've finished and I've checked it off and signed it off and I'm happy with it? That then triggers the 28 days. So many different things that, they, that you can that you can uh, apply to to those terms. Mm. And speaking of payment terms, some builders ask for you know X percentage upfront to cover you know materials or the you know the labour done until the first invoice. What are your thoughts on upfront payments? And if you sort of encourage them or do them, how apart? Well, I guess the contract protects us, but yeah. What what are your thoughts on upfront payments? Uh, it's going to depend on the element of work and what approach that you, you are doing on that project. If you are using a one-stop shop builder, such if you was approaching me, for example, let's say that you asked me to come and do a, a project for you, full house refurbishment, everything was in the, in the scope, the program, everything else. And let's say that, that that was a 30K revenue job. Now, for us to undertake that, we're going to incur costs before we even set foot on site. The cost that we incur, the cost that we will incur is engaging our safety consultant, having our construction phase plan produced, putting our submissions in, any planning submissions, any building reg submissions, all of this advanced work, uh, you know, management time in producing a program, management time in setting up our subcontract supply chain, and planning all this work into our own diary. So once that work is planned into our diary, that's it. You've got a set period that we can then reject any other work that's coming in. So I think it's wholly fair and reasonable to uh, to to ask for a deposit. Uh, in our own business, we pull in 10% on exchange of contracts. So we, we exchange contracts and there's a 10% fee to be paid. Uh, that 10% fee just secures our time in the diary and it gives us that bit of comfort that you're invested in me. And knowing that you've invested in me means I can now spend which means spending on my consultant, my submissions, my time, my procurement procedures, sorting out deliveries, skips, all them types of things. So I think an advance payment is is right and proper. I have heard of uh, one-man bands asking for 40% up front, which for me, I wouldn't pay that out uh, unless they can demonstrate to me a significant advance spend of them doing the work. Um, but you know, it's one of it's, it's a judgment call. I think I don't think there's any hard and fast rules, and I don't think there's any right or wrong. You know, if this is if this this guy is somebody that you trust, uh, and you know you're, you're comfortable in in paying that money over, you know, if you've done the right levels of due diligence, I don't really see an issue with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And let's say the build's going good, it's going well, but then the worst happens you know something let's kind of you know let's just say that you know there's lots of issues that us as investors can cause with our communication with the changing things last minute with not understanding you know construction but let's say because this is a common thing that people message me on instagram about um they've had a bad job done and it's been verified bad by other trades or it's so obvious that you look at it and say yeah that's bad and it's not just a trial mark it's like you know we're talking it's it's upsetting to see this kind of work um and again this is obviously so situation dependent um but what's your kind of thoughts on when work is done badly are you a kind of fire them asap get someone else and get on with it or how do you generally approach those kind of situations if there is a general way 
Uh, well, there isn't. Each you've got to take each case on its own merit, and you need to be more specific with what's bad. And again, we go back to an expectation not being met. What's bad can sometimes be subjective. You know, when we're looking at poor plastering, one person's expect one one's person's standard of acceptance for plastering is going to be very different to the next. You know, some some people I've seen people put spirit levels on angle beads on window heads and reveals. I don't think that's necessary. If if it's two mil out of plum, but it looks good for me, that's okay. I'm okay with that on on a, on a flip in my own house. I perhaps wouldn't accept it. However, you know what what damage is it going to create? Imagine the house is decorated and you spot this angle bead that's out of plum or level. Are you then going to start raving out angle bead? just to have it two mil square and this goes back to what's good enough what we, what we talked about earlier you know there becomes a point where you have to accept a certain level of but let's say it was a like a you know i don't know let's say it was a plumber for example came yeah. in repiped the whole house uh, you know put the boiler on left never saw him again and it was leaking everywhere like to like a, a objectively bad job okay i can speak from experience this has actually happened to me <laughs> Um, so what did I do in that instance? The guy was the guy was sacked um, on the spot, but that was probably a bit of a, a reaction from me. Uh, I was pissed off at the time, and looking back, I perhaps wouldn't have done that. You know, I probably would have responded a little bit better. But I was angry; it cost me a lot of money to put back right. Um, I forgot what the question was. How how should we as investors handle that? Is it a get rid of them, get someone else in, or is it work with them? And like again, I know it's very very broad, but kind of I just want people to maybe understand that sometimes you have to maybe just get rid of that person ASAP, but sometimes you have to work with them. There is, but again, it's going to depend on if you set up your contracts properly. That again, there's going to be a point of reference, and this is where contract law can come in, uh, and it could bite you in the ass. You can't just you know, even though they're subcontractors, if they're in a contract, you know, you, you're you're skating on thin ice by just terminating a contract. You, you can't do that, uh, particularly if there's clauses in there that protect the um, that protect the contractor from you doing that. Uh, I I would always say, I mean, if I was to look back at that situation again, where I did sack that guy on the spot, that was a as I look back, that was an overreaction from me, uh, and professionally what I, how I should have approached it and legally I guess uh, contractually should I say um, it, that should have been look we've got this issue and that issue I can't just say that shit that that's unhelpful it's unhelpful to anyone you know I need to give him an objective list of issues um, you know I've got you've done this central eating system to use your analogy again you've done this central eating system uh, but it's leaking all over the place we've seen uh, leaks in room one two and three there wasn't anything in the hallway, but these rooms are leaks. I'm going to give you 24 hours to put this right. It's an emergency. Or I'm going to give you seven days to put this right. They have to be given the opportunity to put put their work right. If then they refuse to put it right or they don't put it right or it continues to leak, then I guess you've got, you've got a legal contractual argument, again, depending on what is actually in your contract, uh, to, to seek others. Now, if you do seek out others, uh, you're within your rights to say uh, I would be let's let's just throw some figures at it so the initial install was three grand but you know you can't just not pay them you can't just stop their entire money you know if you get someone in uh, what happened in my example we'd paid five grand for an HMO um, central heating and uh, six showers installation uh, there was leaks everywhere and the guy came and put the leaks right for 1200 quid 
after we'd sacked this guy. So we stopped 1,200 quid out of the guy's 5K. He still got the rest of his money because he still had materials to buy. And yes, it was a crap install. And I'm not going to use the guy again. Well, that 1,200 quid that we stopped, we can justifiably back that up with the reasoning and why, how that came to be. If a guy came, took me to court, for example, the five grand guy and said, look, I had a five grand, uh, I did five grand of work for Paul. Uh, I installed it all and he just sacked me. You know, I need to be evidencing why I sacked him. I need to be evidencing the fact that the house was leaking. Can I film it? Can I see damage? Can I film the damage? Can I record the damage? Can I demonstrate that I gave him the opportunity to come and put that back right again? I now need to show that I've been out and fairly sought alternate prices to come and put this work right. Yes, I got three quotes. I got one in at 1300, one at 1500 and one at 1200. So I went with a 1200 quid guy. So I've now paid out 1200 quid. There's the money going out. And that's why I stopped it from his 5k. You know, when, when it comes to a claim, it's based on the reasonable man and not uh, beyond all reasonable doubt. So, I think that would be a reasonable approach and looked on favorably, personally. Yeah. Okay. Now that makes sense. And what are some common mistakes that you see property investors making in their refurbs? Um, doing works out of sequence, adding extras as project goes on, uh, changing mind. Biggest one, changing strategy. Those are those are very. Uh, I would say they those are very um, overarching mistakes. But if we're going to look at simple on-site mistakes that I see people make, uh, putting light switches behind doors, that is a big one. Uh, you know, the, they'll come up with a plan where they say swing all the doors or turn them the other way, and then the light switch ends up behind the door, and you think, oh, why did you why did you ask us to do that? Um, you know, and you can point these things out and they go, I don't really understand what you're saying. Uh, just do what I've asked. Okay. Um, the biggest one, the biggest one that causes the builder pain is the old, I'm using LNPG horse shit. I'm providing you with all the materials. And you sat around with your thump your ass for days on end waiting for the paint to turn up. And it turns up wrong. Or they send the kitchen that's wrong or damaged. Or, or there's a bit missing. Or they don't send the right tiles or they come with a cracked box of tiles and we've got lads on site that can't crack on because the materials that you, the investors meant to be supplying aren't, aren't suitable for the task or there's not enough of it. Uh, Labour only is an absolute nightmare for the investor. And if you've done it, you'll know it. it it's a, It's just, I don't get it. I don't get why why they do it. I don't understand it. So I found I do a mix. So I will order the kitchen. Um, I'll order. I'll order the swag basically, um, or I'll say to them, "It's at this shop. You know, pick it up." But anything else, plasterboard, cement, you know, any of the kind of stuff that I'm not really interested in, I will let them pick up. Um, so far, as far as I'm aware, it's been okay. I've forgotten one end panel, I think, but basically that was it. So I found it for the swag parts to be quite useful to do it myself. Yeah, ordering it's fine, mate. You know, I, I'd be comfortable with that. It's when they take charge of the whole lot, delivery, uh, you know, uh, skips, scaffold, materials, windows. Oh, it's just an absolute travesty, nightmare waiting to happen. Uh, in fact, we don't even operate in that space anymore. If I get an inquiry that comes in and says, can you give me a labour-only price? 
the answer is no. No, no, fair enough. And you know, I guess we're at the end of our journey within this this you know imaginary project we're kind of working on. But obviously, we've got the last stages, and snagging is one of those last stages. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've you know three thousand projects. You've done a lot uh, of snagging. Talk me through what this is for people who don't understand, and maybe any tips or pointers you can give to people who are maybe snagging their first. Yeah, first of all, first and foremost, don't snag it until the builder says it's ready for snagging because there's nothing more frustrating than the client that turns up three days from the end and starts pointing fingers all over the room when you're not finished. If you're picking up more than three things in a room, that work is not complete. It's not ready for snagging. Snagging should be things like a bit of decorator's coat that's missing or there's a bit of paint that's splashed off a skirting board and gone onto the wall, a socket that might be on the skew, a door that needs easing or a a kitchen door that's slightly out of line, a window that doesn't open. These types of little tiny, little niggly things, they are snags. Now, the way that my construction business operates our snag, again, we have a, a business procedure for snagging. When our contractors have finished their piece of work, they'll they'll confirm that they've installed the, the installation, whatever it is that they're there to install, in accordance with the specification, and it's been signed off by the site manager that then will come up to the project manager and the project manager will look at it and he'll go snag it. So the project manager will go along and let's say it's, let's say it's the electrics. Uh, he'll go around with his snag list in hand, which is a business procedure again, and he'll look at things like level and line uh, or all, all the switches and sockets work, all the outlets work. There's a bulb in all the pendants or spots, whichever uh, is on. Do all the rockers work? If we've got any two ways, do they both work? The outside lights fitted, does the alarm work, does, do all the TV points work? All, all these things are all checked before we'll sign off payment. Now, that then jumps into our payment term procedure where all our snag lists must be signed off. And then that snag list that's signed off by the project manager at that point goes back to the subcontractor that's done the work. That subcontractor then submits his invoice to me and the accounts team. So that invoice will be coupled with a signed off snag list by our site representative. If he doesn't have that, it does, his payment term isn't triggered. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. And then for, say, property investors who maybe don't have that set up or don't, have, or, or don't work with a company like yours that has those setups, say a smaller company. Um, so like I, my builder says to me, yeah, I'm snagging over the next few days. I'm like, yeah, you're not. I'm going to snag it or someone else is. Do you think that a third party should always snag it who isn't the person who's worked on it for weeks on end? from them no they've got to snag their own work first you know there'd be nothing worse than them getting to the end and them saying um i'm going to snag this and you say no i'm snagging it i'd be like no mate i'm going to snag it first you know I, with the greatest of respect i have a, a keener eye than, than than what than what a property investor would have so I, i'll spot things that perhaps that the investor wouldn't um and no, I would expect to be given, afforded the opportunity to snag my own work first, and then it's up to you to come along if you feel necessary uh, to come snag it yourself as well. I mean, we do a lot of work for distance investors, uh, so so that that's not always possible. Uh, when I say distance, I mean overseas. So it's difficult for them to come along and and actually snag the snag the work. So there's a, there's a, there is an element of trust that has to be built, uh, you know. FaceTime doesn't work for snagging. You can't touch the walls or, 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 
or f- or feel lumps or trial marks or anything like that. You can't, you just can't do it. Uh, yeah, and photos is even worse. You know, you, you you can't you can't snag with photos. It needs to be touched and felt by a representative, either if it's either yourself or, or if they feel the need to have a representative. But for me, I'd be working with a team of builders that I'm building a relationship with. You know, this is not a one-off thing. Uh, so it wouldn't be something that I would just look to, right, let's go snag this property, right, he's finished now, and then parting ways. I'd, I'd be looking at the next project with, with the same guys. I'd be wanting to build a team around me. Now, I hate the phrase power team, but, you know, that that's, that's the, what I'd be trying to build. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And one thing I think I want to talk about because I don't understand it is so you and me were talking on a um, a Facebook post today, actually, that I put up about some stairs in a property and you said value engineering. What is that? And can you talk us through, yeah, just what it is? Yeah, I can. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's actually a QS term, so a, a quantity surveyor's term. It's just something I've picked up over the years of working alongside these, these professionals. Um, now, value engineering is when you look at look at a product or service and to use your example that what, what you've done there so you've come across something there that that's potentially going to sting you for two and a half k but you already had a solution for it so that solution you had for that problem you'd already allowed a grand for that task yeah so you're left with a 1500 quid to find so if you're working the if you work the project into your budget rather than the budget into your project you will find 1,500 quid really, really easily. Hang on a minute, there's a chop saw going off outside. Two seconds. Yeah. Just switch the saw off a minute, mate. All right. Um, so for that for that particular piece of work, I'd be looking at the big ticket items first. So in particular, your kitchens and your bathrooms. So what value have you got on your kitchen in that property? Uh, for the materials, labor for both. For materials, I think that kitchen cost oh, six um, six hundred, including appliances, all in small kitchen. That is small kitchen. We need to look elsewhere. What about fitting? How much is a fitting? Mm, that was a small kitchen again. It was probably about five hundred for fitting, including all the plumbing for it. Yeah. So, what was the total spend on the whole job? So the total. Um, budget including materials like things i've bought like kitchen etc um is 14 pounds £14, basically for materials no that's for materials and labor yeah, so materials and labor um what what about your own sort of your time your overheads not factored in not factored in because it hasn't hasn't taken a huge amount of time to, like really but yeah, I know that's something that should be factored in, but it's not here. So, so whilst it doesn't take a huge amount of time, it still takes time and time money. Uh, so is that 14K, is that a one-stop shop builder? Uh, different he did have six lads, but they're all shit, so we got rid of them. So now he's a one-stop shop builder, yeah. Right, okay. Uh, so the first thing I would do is I would ask them for a 5% discount. One conversation, one phone call. Hello, John, Dave, whatever the builder's name is. Uh, look, we've come across this um, this issue. Uh, I know it's not your issue and it's mine. It's 14K the best you can do. Stop talking and then th- let, let, let them talk. So ask that question. Uh, is that the best you can do? It's a really, really strong question and I love using it. The power comes when you stop talking. It's so easy to say to things like, 
Um, is that the best you can do? Because I've got this. And then you start rabbit, like, you know, waffling and waffling and waffling and waffling. So is, I've been on the other end of it. But if someone says, is that the best price you've got? Is that the best you can do? And then they stop talking. The builder will feel the need to fill that silence with noise. And they generally talk themselves into a discount. I'm being serious. You try it. I did a I did a last training course we did in the room. Uh, one of the attendees, uh, I, I, we do a live challenge, and this particular guy had a uh, he was fit in a bathroom uh, on one of his projects, and that was the challenge. I want you to ring your builders now if any of you've got a live project and ask that question, and he got five hundred quid off in the room. So it was really good. It was really powerful for 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 him to do that. It gave him the confidence to be able to do it moving forwards. And it gave everybody else the confidence in the room that this this was a thing. People don't buy it when I say it, but trust me, that, it's a really, really good question to ask. It, it definitely works. I've done it by accident over email, which obviously very, it's still different, but it did work. It got me, yeah, off this job actually already. So, yeah. Don't do it over, I wouldn't do it over email. Uh, if it's done over email, an email can be ignored. If you're on the phone, that noise, the, the silence will be filled. Yeah, yeah, of course, definitely. It's powerful, yeah. Definitely. I mean, if you save five, if you save ten percent on that, that'd be fourteen hundred quid. If you save five percent, that's seven hundred pound. So then, now we've got to find another eight hundred quid. I could find eight hundred quid on that, no problem. Just a change of product, just a drop of the kitchen unit. You know, all these little things, these little micro wins. It works better when you're using little individual trades because we can go to each of them. If you've got ten trades on a job, you can go to each trade and say, uh, you know, look, mate, we're looking for hundred quid discount. Yeah, I've kind of I've kind of got a plaster and doing stuff separately to speed things up. And yeah, I've managed to get about 400, 500 quid off the original spec for plastering and a little bit more using social media. So it does work. Um, it, it definitely does work. Yeah, it does. Although if you are going to use me, I don't fall for that trick, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't use the trick on the person who taught you it, right? No. Oh, hey, sometimes you can, but <laughs> you're yeah. immune to it. Okay, and then, and I think I know what you're going to say to this, but is it ever possible for a refurb to come in under budget and before deadline? Yeah, of course it is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it's a common thing that like, or a common joke that I guess you have as property investors where we're like, oh, is it late? Of course it is. Is it over budget by a bit? Or Yeah, of course it is. But your value engineering can stop that. It can, but let's go back to what I said initially when you say is it late. What are we, what are we, you know, late, based on what, you know, th these, these key pieces of information, I'm not saying you do this, but these key pieces of information, the builder has to know them. You have to tell him what your expectations are. If he doesn't know what your expectations are, he's going to disappoint you. I can guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Definitely. There's been times where I haven't given, when I started out, I didn't give an expectation. I just sort of assumed, well, you know, you know, you know, it's a twelve-week project done, um, <clears throat> and then it came to that point where it was like, yeah, disappointment, but disappointment in what? <laughs> it's my fault for not giving them the um... no, no point of reference at all. You know? Yeah, and I think it, it, yeah, like you said, it protects both parties just to have that stated in a contract, whatever it is that this is the time frame. Um, it stops arguments. It, I, I personally can I agree with you. It stops arguments. I've seen it happen before. So, um, Paul, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Do you want to tell people briefly about your um, training thing that you mentioned at the start? 
Yeah, so we, we offer a, uh, it's a refurb project management approach. So we do a, uh, we do lots of little micro courses, but I won't, uh, I won't talk into those. Um, and uh, that refurb journey uh, that I've took, we've basically overviewed it during this podcast. So from the survey right at the beginning of the project, and then we look at programming of the works, we look at scheduling, we look at writing a specification, then we look at how, how and where to find subcontractors, where, how we get into the contract with the subcontractors. Then we look at forecasting in terms of cash flow, time, uh, payment terms. Uh, then we look at uh, the bill cost, how we work out bill costs and managing a budget on a project. And then we go and deliver that project. So the, the, the delivery is right at the end. So that's on the third day of the four-day training. On the fourth day, we have a live site day where we go to site and you're given the opportunity on one of our projects, depending on whereabouts in the project journey it is, as to which part of the training that we'll pick up and do live on that project. We try and get one right at the beginning so you're able to sort of follow the journey and, and follow everything that you need to do that you just learned in those previous uh, three days uh, on, on site. Uh, for more information on the training, we've, we're a website at www.constructiontrainingacademy.com. And then at the back end of that training, we offer an ongoing mentorship group support called the PMX. And that's, that's my, uh, that's my private membership site. That's a, a Facebook group and it's got, um, it, it has, it has daily tasks inside it for, which will help you with your life, business and relationships. Uh, then we have a weekly zoom call where we all come together and, and talk about our learns wins from the week. Then we have a quarterly meeting, a monthly meeting, sorry, a monthly meeting and a quarterly meeting. And we have an annual event as well, whether a dinner and, and awards and things like that. Uh, that's us uh, in a nutshell, really. So do have a do have a, a mosey on over to our website. Lots of downloads on there as well, uh, free downloads for you to grab some templates, a programming template, uh, a little paper on build costs, uh, permitted development, building regulations. Also, I think there's about ten downloads to grab on there. Uh, just register your email address on the page, and uh, you should join that. I also send out. Um, I try and do it daily, but, you know, I sometimes slack off, as we all do. Uh, I try and send out daily content via email. Uh, failing that, I do do daily content in my open Facebook group as well, uh, which is, again, the Constructing Training Academy. Amazing. I will put all these links in the show notes so people can click them and go straight there. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tej, if you like this too. podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.